I don't know about you, but I'm always conflicted on Fallback Sunday. (laughs) On the one hand, I'm thankful for an extra hour of sleep, or by the look of some of you, just for an extra hour. (laughs) But uh, regardless of that, it is good to have an extra hour for something, right? On the other hand, uh, now it's going to start getting dark at like 2.30, And by 8 o'clock, it's going to seem like midnight. Maybe that's just my age, but either way, it's a little depressing. And so I'm always uh, a little bit conflicted on this day. Here's what I'm not conflicted about, however. uh, And that's how great next Sunday is going to be here at Harmony Bible Church. I can tell you that uh, I'm not sure I've been uh, this excited uh, really ever uh, about a Sunday here. and, and, And here's why. Uh, Next Sunday, both in our morning services and then uh, in our annual celebration in the evening, we're going to unveil some just incredible things uh, that God is currently doing in our church. We're going to celebrate those, and then we're also going to reveal to you some really, really big things that we see him calling us to in the days ahead. Uh, Honestly, there there are so many good things that we don't have enough time to do it just in the morning or in the evening, and so we're going to break it up, but here's what I want to tell you. You're you're not going to want to miss any of it. You're not going to miss one thing next weekend, and so please plan to be in a morning service and then come back at six o'clock at our Danville campus uh, to celebrate and to hear all that God is doing and is going to do in the days ahead. Let me just say a, a word to, to my fellow bow hunters this morning. Can I say that? All right? I, I know. Just bear with me, okay? Bear with me. Uh, but I know, like, next weekend, next Sunday, is like just in the middle of the rut, and it looks like it's going to be the best, maybe, hunting day of the year. And so, so I understand. Listen, I understand that, that you, you want to be in a tree, because I really want to be in a tree too, all right? But, but here's the deal. I'm not going to get to be in a tree, all right? And I'm happy not to. I'm happy not to. But, but here's what you can do. You can go out for a morning sit, all right? Get down around 9.30, make it to a service, take the service in, go back in for an afternoon sit, get down when it gets dark, and make it here for 6 o'clock. You get both the, the, the morning and the evening in, all right? You can get it in. I'm not going to get it in. You're going to get it in, all right? But you're not going to want to miss. I, I know, by the way, this applies to like 1% of the people here today, all right? But these are my people, okay? So I just want to encourage you um, and all of us here again uh, to be here next Sunday morning and evening. Now, uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. The next two weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about one of the most crucial aspects of discipleship, prayer, prayer. We, we know that prayer is a crucial aspect of discipleship because Jesus talks about it more than any other topic in the Sermon on the Mount by a wide margin. Did you get that? Number one topic in the Sermon on the Mount is what? Prayer. By a big margin. In fact, Jesus talks about prayer in two different places in the sermon. And over the next two Sundays, we're going to look at these passages together. Now, I know that whenever it comes To the topic of prayer, our immediate gut-level response is often guilt. We know that as Christians, we're supposed to pray, but because few, if any of us, have the kind of prayer lives we think we should have, we can feel really guilty when we're confronted with what the Bible has to say about prayer. However, this morning, I want to share with you a couple of core principles I've learned to combat this. These, These even might be what I would call 
Chris Carr's two secrets for the Christian life. There are two things that I've learned to do whenever I'm confronted with something that's guilt-inducing, whether that be sex or marriage or money or, in this instance, prayer. So here's what I've learned to do. First, I've learned to remember my justification. The wonderful truth that because I have faith in Jesus, God has declared me not guilty but righteous in his sight. Uh, This means that, that God doesn't relate to me on the basis of my failures. Isn't that a wonderful truth? But rather on the basis of Jesus' perfect record. Therefore, I don't need to wallow in guilt, but rather I can freely embrace what God is calling me to do. Then right in line with this, second, I've learned to see things that can be guilt-inducing as opportunities. Opportunities to grow and to experience the goodness and the glory of God in a way that I never have before. And I wanna invite you, yes, you, each and every one of you, to apply these same principles over the next two weeks as we study what Jesus has to say about prayer. If you feel guilty about the current state of your prayer life, then remember your justification and then see this as an opportunity, an invitation, we might say, to experience the transformational goodness and glory of God in a way that you never have before. So that said, let's look at our text we're going to start in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, going to go all the way to verse 18, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 7 and look at verses 7 through 11. So kind of uh, long passages to read here, but it'll be well worth it. Follow along with me. Here's what God's word says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Skip over to chapter 7, verse 7 says this, Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I want to make 
two big picture observations about prayer from these passages. Number one, prayer is a given for disciples of Jesus. Remember, yet again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us a portrait of discipleship, and it's clear from what we just read that he expects his disciples to pray. You will note in verses 5, 7, and 18 of chapter 6, Jesus doesn't say, if you pray and if you fast, he says, when you pray and when you fast. This is basic, but it's a necessary starting point. Prayer is a core aspect of discipleship. To be a disciple is to be a person of prayer. To be a disciple is to be a person of prayer. Now, with that said, what do you do if you're a disciple and you're not a person of prayer? What if you're someone who has a meager prayer life? What if you're someone who really struggles to prayer? What do you do with what Jesus says here? What do you do with what I've just said? Well, let me tell you what you do. And yet again, you can probably guess where I'm going to take you, right? Where am I going to take you? I'm going to take you back to the first beatitude yet again. You should allow your lack of prayer to make you poor in spirit. And you should cry out to God and ask him to teach you to pray. The first beatitude is really a prayer in itself. And I suggest it's the first and foundational prayer, one we must return to over and over again if we're going to have the kind of prayer life that Jesus calls us to. So friends, this is both serious and eminently practical. We we all struggle to pray. I I would just say, from my experience, I've been doing this a long time now, I'm not sure I have ever met a Christian who would say that their prayer life is where they want it to be and where it should be. So this this is something that applies to all of us, all right? So, so, So what do we do when we're faced with teaching that we certainly, assuredly fall short of? Do we just wallow in our guilt? We just say, I'm not going to deal with it. No, no. As disciples of Jesus, who do we go to? Where do we turn? We turn to him. And we cry out. To, we, we, we pray. And we say, God, help me. Teach me. Motivate me. Empower me to pray like Jesus calls me to pray. So here, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to apply this like right here and right now. But listen, I'm not interested, by the way, in you thinking that this is a smooth message, all right? I'm not interested in you thinking, oh, this is a great, powerful message. What I'm interested in is I'm interested in you taking God's word and applying it to your life. That's, you, by the way, that's what's most important, right? What's most important is for you to hear a great message today. What's most important is for this word to change your life. So, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna just take some time and we're gonna go to silence And I really want to call you. I'm not invite or encourage. I'm going to call you to, to in your heart, to present yourself to the Lord humbly and to say, Lord, today, next Sunday, over the coming weeks, will you please teach me to pray? So let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Here at the Anvil Campus, Fort Madison, Burlington, watching online, in the quietness, just block everything out. Let's take a few seconds to quietly humble our hearts before the Lord and to ask him to teach us to pray.
Father, you say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want to pray that you will enable us to experience that kingdom in a greater way today. And we may experience the power of the kingdom, that you will send your Holy Spirit, and he will teach us to pray, and that we might begin to experience the blessings that come from it, and that through our prayers, your kingdom may come and your will may be done here on earth as it is in heaven. For your sake. Amen. So prayer is a given for disciples of Jesus. But here's the second observation. And it's just as important. Prayer is rewarding for disciples of Jesus. It's a given, but it's also a reward. In everything that Jesus says about prayer and the Sermon on the Mount, he wants us to understand that when we pray as he tells us to, we will be rewarded, like big time rewarded. You see, when it comes to prayer, Jesus isn't trying to condemn us, he's trying to motivate us. Jesus wants us to experience the sweet fruit of prayer, and so over and over again, he promises to reward those who give themselves to it. I understand that this may have never been your experience to this point. I, may know, I know uh, that you may have never truly experienced the rewards of prayer and therefore may be skeptical and even cynical that prayer can be rewarding for you. In fact, in my experience, there's a lot of cynicism when it comes to prayer and being a natural cynic myself, I get it. But, but here's what I would invite you to do. Dive in with me here over the next two weeks. Have faith that Jesus is telling the truth that prayer truly is rewarding. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, so friends, start by believing that God rewards those who seek him. And then engage with me over the next two weeks to learn how this can become a reality for you. All right, here's how we're going to break things down. In the rest of our time today, we're going to talk about how not to pray. And then next Sunday, we're going to talk about how to pray. You'll note that Jesus starts his teaching on prayer by saying, hey, don't pray this way before transitioning to giving us a, a model prayer, prayer that we know is the Lord's prayer. I'm actually going to call it the disciples' prayer, but we'll get to that next week. Now, for today now, let's talk about how not to pray. And in this passage, Jesus gives us four ways not to pray. He says that we're not to pray hypocritically, mindlessly, endlessly, and ignorantly. We'll begin with hypocritically. Look at verses five and six again. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The word uh, for hypocrites here originally came uh, from the theater. Uh, it referred to actors who would put on different masks to play uh, roles, various roles. So uh, I have a mask here uh, from my favorite musical of all time, Phantom of the Opera. I see they're snickering and laughing already. Why is that? Because you know that I'm being hypocritical in saying that I like Phantom of the Opera. 
You see, a hypocrite is someone who does something or says something that masks the truth about them. So, so they give something on the outside that, that isn't really true or doesn't really reveal or hides, masks what's true about them on the inside. Uh, for me to pretend that I like Phantom on the Opera, uh, or any opera for that matter, is masking the truth about how I feel. I'd rather have a root canal than go to an opera. <laughs> Truly. Truly. Yeah, amen. <laughs> My dentist was in the first service at Burlington. I said, I'd rather go see him this afternoon than go to see Phantom of the Opera. Although, here, here's, the, here's the truth. I actually have seen Phantom of the Opera out of love for Eva. Uh, and it would have been so bad if they hadn't sung through the whole thing. <laughs> anyway. We pray hypocritically. We pray hypocritically when our focus is on impressing others rather than on communicating with our Heavenly Father. Let me say that again. We pray hypocritically when we're focused on what other people are thinking rather than on communicating with our Heavenly Father. And we can do this in a number of ways. We, We can do it by making a big show when we pray publicly. That's what Jesus is primarily addressing here. But we can also do it when we make a big deal publicly about how we are praying privately. Like like we want to make people uh, really aware of how much we pray, how great our prayer life is. Uh, But we can also do it when we are thinking too much as we pray about what other people are thinking as we are praying. Are they thinking that I said the right words? Are they thinking that I'm super spiritual? Am I going to mess up? We we, we get too worried uh, about being embarrassed that we might say the wrong thing. Whenever our focus is on other people rather than on our Heavenly Father, we are praying hypocritically. And let me just give you some encouragement here because I know that this is a huge issue for, for so many people. Uh, it's really difficult for many of us to pray around other people. And I just want to encourage you that, that one of the reasons that that is the case is because we're, we're worried about saying the wrong things, what other people are going to think. But here's what I want to say to you, friends. What God is most concerned about is what's going on in your heart, not about what you say. And he's much more concerned about you having the right heart than having the right words. And I would say that if you have the right heart and you are really seeking to communicate with him, to please him, then you can know that even if your words come out wrong, it's okay. He's pleased with you, pleased with what you were saying and with what you are doing. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that when we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Spirit intercedes for us. So so you can even not even know what to say and sometimes even say the wrong things and it's going to be okay because you got the Holy Spirit and he'll take care of it. But the point is, is you got to get your head out of thinking about other people and thinking about the Lord because prayer is communication between us and the Lord. So maybe it will help to put all this positively. Jesus is telling us that we should pray with sincerity. When we pray, we should be sincerely talking to our Heavenly Father. We shouldn't be concerned with what others are thinking of us, but solely focused on our relationship with Him. Second, Jesus says we're not to pray mindlessly. Look at verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The Greek word here for heap up empty phrases can also be translated babbling and refers to a person who repeats the same words over and over again without thinking. 
Uh, This was the practice of pagans in Jesus' day, and it's found in almost every world religion today. It's the belief that there are special magical words that will compel God to give us what we ask for. It's the kind of prayer that treats God like as a genie in the bottle, who we've just got to get that right phrase, and if we get that right phrase, he will give us what we want. Now, while this might not be our exact mentality, uh, the truth is, is that we're often guilty of something similar. I mean, have you ever found yourself repeating the same prayer at meals? Or at bedtime with kids? Or at church? Do you find that there are times where you say the same thing over and over again without thinking about what you're saying? I know that I do. So as a pastor, father, dad, I am uh, asked to pray or leading in prayer with other people all the time. Like it's, it's like a daily occurrence, all right? And, and the challenge for me is, and I was really convicted by this point this week, because I know that there are quite a few times where I'm just like, I, I, know, the, I know what to say, all right? It just comes out. The problem is I find a lot of times that I'll get done with the prayer and I can't actually remember what I've just said because I wasn't thinking about it. That's what Jesus is really talking about here. What he's talking about is that, that when we pray, we need to engage our minds. And here's why we need to engage our minds. At its core, prayer is communion with the living God. I think sometimes that we forget that God is a person. Like, I'm a person, God is a person. He's not a force, he's not an object, he's not a thing. He's a person who's invited us to have a close, personal relationship with him. He says, you can come before my throne with boldness and confidence. And he bids us to come before him. And if we're going to do so, and we're going to engage in this relationship and experience all the blessings and the benefits that it offers, we have to engage our minds. We have to think about what we're praying about. We have to be conscious of our actual words. And we have to deeply consider the implications of what we are saying. I want to give you a very simple and, again, eminently practical way to do this. Here's how you do this. You pray scripture. You get your Bible out. And you pray Bible phrases or passages, verses to the Lord, thinking about the words that you are saying. The Bible is full of prayers. It's full of passages that can easily be prayed. Let me just give you one example. Luke 10.2. Everybody write that down. Luke 10.2. And Luke 10.2, Jesus says, okay, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. So Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out labors into the harvest. It's actually a command that Jesus' disciples are to be praying on a regular basis. Here's a helpful way to actually apply this to your life. Take your phone out, all right, and set an alarm for 10.02 every morning so that you can be reminded at 10.02 to pray Luke 10.2. Pray that prayer and say, Lord, will you please raise up labors to go out into the harvest? I know you tell us that the harvest is plentiful. We just need labor. So will you send labors into the harvest? If you're going to go a little bit further here, okay, think about places in the world that need labors. Pray for those people specifically and pray that they will come to see and to know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But there are lots of other passages that you can do. So, so if you're, you're here today, to be honest with you, uh, in many ways we don't have any excuse not to learn to pray because the Bible gives us passages to pray and if we will simply pray them and think through them as we do, 
we will be doing, we'll be a long way ahead of where we were probably when we came in. Third, Jesus says we're not to pray endlessly. Now this is gonna uh, take some uh, explanation, so listen carefully. By endlessly, I don't mean that we shouldn't pray extended prayers. However, however, Note again that in verses seven and eight, Jesus says that we're not to pray like the Gentiles who think that they will be heard for their many words because our Father already knows what we need even before we ask him. Now, this is an amazing statement because in it, Jesus is contradicting virtually every world religion. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Catholicism, and even Judaism stress long, repeated petitions as the way to pray. They all teach that if you really want God to hear you, you have to pray a lot. However, here's what this subtly says. It's easy to miss this, but what it says is that God relates to us on the basis of what we do rather than the basis of his grace. On the basis of works, rather than the basis of grace. This portrays God as a grudging giver who we have to convince to bless us instead of as a generous father who loves to give his children good gifts. The idea is you've gotta gotta really work God over, okay? Because God's kind of a grudging giver and you, you really, really gotta get to him over and over and over again and finally he might give you what you want that's not what Jesus is saying. No, no, what Jesus is saying is God wants to give you. He wants to give and he wants to give and he wants to give and all you gotta do is ask. You just gotta ask. So let me, well, let me say it this way. There's a passage in Isaiah that says that God blesses us even before we express our need to him. I just love Isaiah 65, 24, which says this, before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. Brothers and sisters, this is God's heart to you. His heart is a heart that can hardly restrain itself from giving to his children. This is so important to understand because discouragement over our meager prayer lives is one big reason we don't pray. We have this idea if we don't pray for long periods, then there's really no reason to pray because short prayers just aren't going to cut it. But Jesus shows us here that this simply isn't the case. He tells us that more words are not what get God's attention. Instead, he says that God hears short and simple prayers, and what's more, he likes them. How can I say that? Well, what's the model prayer that Jesus gives you? How long do you think, by the way, it would take you actually to pray that prayer? You can pray the Lord's Prayer in less than a minute. And I want you to know that in verse nine, look at it, look at how it starts. Jesus says, pray then like this. Let me make sure you get what I'm saying here. You can certainly pray for long periods of time. That's to be commended and that's to be encouraged. But you don't have to pray for long periods of time in order for God to hear you. God hears five-second prayers just as much as 50-minute prayers. And if I'm understanding Jesus right, maybe even more. Does that help you a little bit? Does it help you to know that, 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 that God will hear your prayers even if they're really, really short? 
here's why I think this is so important is because before you can actually pray for long periods of time and be thinking about what you're, you're praying about and actually be doing it as the scripture would called you to, you have to know and be encouraged and be motivated that you don't have to pray that long in order for God to hear you. Fourth, Jesus says we're not to pray ignorantly. And by that, I mean we're not to pray ignoring that God is our Father. Now, here's the most important part of the message, so I really want you to lean in with me here, all right? Nine, count them nine times in our two passages, Jesus calls God our Father. I think this is intentional. Do you think this is intentional? You think Jesus wants to remind us of something? I take this to mean that when we pray, we're to consciously recognize that the God to whom we speak is the one who has adopted us as his children. Children he loves to give good gifts to. I love how Jesus pictures it in chapter seven. He says, uh, you know, you're evil. Not, a, not very encouraging there, by the way, right? He says, you're evil. And yet you give good gifts to your children. Don't you think God, who's perfect, is going to give even more generously to his children? You following here? Every parent that has ever lived on this earth is fallen. Terribly fallen. And yet, most of us not only give to our kids, but we love to do so. And I just want you to think about this. If if that's the case, how can it not be true that the only father who's not fallen is going to do the same for his kids? In fact, how can it not be true that he's going to do so much more? Now, as I say that, here's what I know. I know that there are not just a few of us who, because of the earthly fathers that we've had, really struggle to believe that our heavenly father is like this. So, so, so many of us have had um, earthly father, fathers who are cold, who are distant, who are ungenerous, who are maybe even harsh, and some of them even abusive. That's the case uh, for many of us. And, and even the best dads fall short in many different areas. And so because of that, we have a really hard time understanding how God delights in us, how God is never angry with us, how how God just has a heart of perfect love and unconditional acceptance of us no matter what we've got going on in our life. Can I just say this to you today? If you are God's child, no matter how much of a mess you are today, God still loves you and unconditionally accepts you and delights in you. He shouts over you. He rejoices over you. Some of you have never heard this in church ever before. Okay? And, and that's one of the reasons you're having a hard time with what I'm saying here. But all I'm saying is what the Bible says. Over and over and over again. You, you know what the theme of the Bible is over and over again? It, it's God's grace and love for those who are his. It's not his condemnation. Okay? It, it, it's not his wrath. It's his love. It's his mercy. It's his compassion. It's his grace. Now, how can you know this is true? How can you know this is true? Let me tell you how you can know this is true. Romans 8.32 says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's argument here is from the greater to the lesser. If God was willing to give us the greatest thing he could give, 
If he was willing to send his son to take the punishment for our sin so that we could be saved and spend eternity with him, then won't he also give us all of the much lesser things? Listen, the greatest gift that could ever be given is Jesus, amen? The truth we're gonna celebrate here in a little bit over a month. Celebrate it a big time. Why do we celebrate Christmas so much? We celebrate Christmas so much, not because it's a tradition, we celebrate it so much because it is a reminder of one of the most wonderful truths in the world, that God loved us so much that he sent his son for us. And here's what I can just say to you, friends, this morning. You know, uh, if you have Jesus and you have nothing else, what do you have? Everything. Everything. And what Paul is saying, if God was willing to give you everything, isn't he going to be willing to give you everything else that you need? And the answer to that is yes. According to Jesus, the answer to that is yes. If, get this, if we will ask. Note again, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open for you. Of course, this isn't all that Jesus has to say about prayer. And it's certainly not all that the Bible has to say about prayer. And we'll talk about a number of these things next week. And I, can I just encourage you, don't, don't be right now, be like, well, well, don't we have to pray according to his will? Okay? And, and don't we have to not regard iniquity in, in, in our hearts? And yes, there, there, there are other things the Bible has to say. Let's put those aside for right now. And recognize that where we have to start is we have to start by asking. Jesus says to ask. Can we take him at his word? Ask, ask, ask. Yes, there are other things. There are other places to go. There are other things to understand. But that's not the problem for most of us. The problem for most of us, we're just not asking. Let's ask. So the final application today is simple. Everybody get this, right? What's the final application? Let's start asking. Now, let me say this, though. For some of us, and I really want you to listen to me. I'm literally, I'm almost done. For some of us, the first thing we need to do is we need to make the big ask. Let me tell you what the big ask is. The big ask is to ask God to make us his child. We need to Turn to God in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We need to ask God to save us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But here's the wonderful truth today. This is a prayer that God always answers 100% of the time. Romans 10 tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will, will be saved. So if you're not a child of God right now, this morning, in this moment, that can all change in an instant. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is say, Jesus, save me, and he will. You'll become a child of God. And I hope that if you're not a child of God currently, you will before you leave today. On the other hand, for those of us who are already God's children, let's start asking more. Let's ask sincerely. Let's ask intelligently. Let's ask succinctly. And most of all, let's ask believing that we have a good and generous and gracious Father who wants to give us good things, who wants to, as Jesus says, reward us.